You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. John, welcome back. Mel, it's so nice to be back just in time for the sunshine to actually come out. I know. Well, just a reminder that in England and Scotland, in fact, across the UK, it's always nicest in June and September. We forget it every year, but every year it's the same. It's nice in June, it's nice in September. And if you've forgotten that, think back to your exams, right? Remember your GCSEs or O-levels for us? Remember your (laughs) A-levels? Remember your degree? Remember taking those exams? Always nice weather when you went back to school, and it was always nice weather when you were taking your exams. That uh, I think I'm trying to work out if that works in Scotland as well, because you go back to school earlier in Scotland. I yeah, it does. maybe it doesn't it does. work in Scotland. I do remember the first day. But it's first true. day was always sunny. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I've never taken an exam when it hasn't been sunny outside. I'm sure of it. So all this business of having our holidays in July and August, total waste of time. But this is not our topic, John. This is not what we're here to talk about. No one's interested <laughs> in our views on the weather. I mean, if you are interested in our views on the weather, do do email and we'll give you more of them. But yeah, if we get loads of them. Yeah, that's pretty much all I've got on the weather for today. <laughs> so while we've been away, July, August, the weather might not have been perfect, but boy, things have changed in the economy, right, John? And we went away. Yeah. The UK was a laggard. It's a nightmare. Everything's terrible because... Well, because Brexit, because something, because something, uh, worst economy in the world, blah, blah, blah. And now suddenly a quick flick of a switch and we're not the worst anymore. Yeah, this was uh, this was the fantastic time-traveling ONS uh, who went back and did their... So every year they revise it and it's called the Blue Book. And this is why, you know, you should always take GDP with a pinch of salt. But the difference with this particular set of revisions is that obviously over the last... In a couple of years, we've heard nothing but, as you were saying, that Britain is a you know a fundamentally broken economy. But the only economy, and this is the line that always comes up, the only economy in the G7 not to have reattained its pre-pandemic size of GDP yet. Um, and so this has sort of been used as a stick to kind of you know beat us with for about two years now. So it turns out after these revisions to the statistics that actually we got back to our pre-pandemic GDP by the end of 2021. So we're no longer uh, behind. We are actually just sort of sitting in the middle of the pack. And actually our recovery was one of the fastest. So we were we only lagged the US and Canada and we were neck and neck with France. So Germany, Italy and Japan were slower than us at recovering from the pandemic. Um, so... Although I got to say, neck and neck with France doesn't make me feel that. Good. I mean, no, I mean, I mean, sacrable, but it's you know, it's kind of, it's better than it was. It's better than being behind France. Um, yeah, 
And I also think we have to say up front, because, you know, you and I would like to be more positive on the UK than other people. These uh, positive revisions to GDP came almost entirely from chucking more money into our miserable health service rather than from a massive expansion in productive activity in the private sector. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was, in fact, manufacturing, as I believe, was revised lower. Um, Mm. But I think think the point is that I think there's two things. So so firstly... um, Yes, other countries haven't yet revised their figures. So the particular methodology that we used, um, so as well as having better data, there's a different methodology, and only the US currently uses this methodology. And note that the US is obviously the much by far the strongest kind of um, recovery from pan- the pandemic. Um, so whenever France and Germany and the rest of them sort of revise their statistics, then possibly they'll get revised higher, and maybe we'll be back near the bottom again. Um, but I think the one thing that you can point out and say is that actually you know that whole storyline about us not getting back to where we were were before the pandemic is definitely incorrect and it's just interesting to think about well you know a year ago uh, when we were having all of that you know political upheaval um, and you know everyone was saying that Liz Truss was you know an idiot and Quasi Quarteng was a maniac you know would that have been different if we hadn't had this kind of perception that the UK was fundamentally, you know, wrong at a level that all the oh, other kind of big oh. economies were not? Interesting. So do you think we should now start disliking the ONS as much as we dislike? No, dislike is the wrong <laughs> word. Disapprove of the Bank of England. I think, the, no, I just think the ONS, I feel... Um, doesn't I think they sort of come in for a, a quite a lot of flack that isn't necessarily you know deserved. It's one of the reasons that Britain's statistics often look so bad is because the ONS is is I hear somewhat more diligent than a lot of other uh, statistical bodies. So our kind of you know statistics are just a bit kind of more in depth. Um, but it's still the case that they, you know, their models are historical and they still don't work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is true. We don't even know what happened yesterday, so how can we hope to predict yeah. what will happen? I think, honestly, what I think the, the real lesson from this kind of like has to be, and we keep sort of saying this, is that you can't think of forecasts as being what will actually happen. It has to be some sort of baseline from, you know, where do you, you kind of scenario plan. But also, any... Hang on, I, th- I just want to be clear on that, John. What you're saying is that most forecasts driven by, mod- by models should not be taken to contain any information, but just to be a random line from which one can scenario plan. Yeah, I, I think that's not a bad way to think about it. Just look at it. Okay, well, look. This- because, because we have to plan. We need something to plan Yeah, this from. is the... And it doesn't matter what we yeah. plan from, but the human condition is to want to make some future plans. So we need a random number, a random line, kind of almost doesn't matter what it is, even if it's just extrapolated from the previous year. We need it to plan because we don't have a plan. We feel a little tough. Yeah, and also extrapolating from the previous year isn't actually the worst one because often that is what happens because momentum's just a thing in life. But if you say, okay, well, look, that's a rough midpoint. Let's have a wee imagine about what could make things go horribly wide of that midpoint and then, you know, disaster plan around those things and then hope that everything else goes okay or something like that, you know, or like you said, maybe it's just, you know, a good psychological crutch. But I think probably what's more important is that, as you said, so this is like two years after the fact, we're hearing this and 
that kind of shows you that well, we certainly can't predict the future and we can't even properly understand the past. And the problem is that there's a lot of people who seem to think that we could vastly improve our governance if we just could only have an omniscient kind of uh, forecast on the middle. Like MMT, for example, is completely dependent on the idea that you can accurately predict what's going to happen to inflation and then predict how you would influence people's behaviour to stop them from acting in an inflationary manner. And that's clearly... MMT, by the way, oh, hang on, stop, John, stop. <laughs> I shouldn't have to do this with I know, you. I know, I'm just so enthusiastic. MMT, MMT, modern monetary policy. Mo sorry, modern monetary theory, the idea that you can just print money indiscriminately with no consequences as long as you can predict the future path of inflation and raise taxes to pull it down when required. Exactly. Right? And you can't okay. predict the future path of inflation. We've learned that, haven't we? Yes, much to our cost. Yes. Yes. Now, John, before we move on, does this uh, reassessment, also possibly incorrect reassessment, but nonetheless reassessment of UK GDP mean anything for our favourite place in the world, the UK stock market? No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean okay. GDP doesn't, I think GDP doesn't matter. This is all partly about. Um, this is more about sentiment. And the thing is, I don't think that... Okay, and as much as it might contribute to a re-evaluation of the UK, which is probably somewhat already underway anyway because the place looks dirt cheap and lots of analysts are actually starting to notice that. Um, you know, it's, it's a kind of... Two years after we exactly. did. Exactly. Maybe five years after we did. It's a, yeah. it's a would, positive, hmm. but... We should say... Yeah, we should say one thing about GDP and markets in that there's a constant belief when you read this in the newspaper all the time, you read articles about countries and their GDP and there's an assumption that if a country grows its economy, its stock market will move with that growth. But of course, stock markets over the long term are driven by valuations. And so it doesn't matter how fast GDP is growing if valuations are already incredibly high. So, you know, this that, that correlation doesn't really exist in the way lots of people believe it does, right? Yeah. Um and I don't, yeah, I think generally with markets, it's not a market moving number when it comes out um, because markets are generally going by economic statistics that are a lot more timely if they're even paying attention to those. Um, so no, I, from that point of view, I don't think it matters. Um, but I do think it's kind of a, a useful reminder that, you know, try not to get too hung up on this stuff and try to kind of take headlines with a pinch of salt, particularly when they're... Um, you know, particularly melodramatic as they were again around about this time last year. I mean, and that was a good buying opportunity for the UK because sterling obviously crashed by about, you know, nearly parity with the dollar. And now it's up at about $1.25. So on that basis alone, um, you know, UK assets are, are, are more valuable now than they were at the kind of peak misery a year ago. It's a good thing we never put melodramatic headlines on our work, isn't no, it? No, no, no clickbait here. No, we don't. No, we don't do that. <laughs> Moving on. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. 
This week, we bring you a lightly edited version of my panel, The Butcher, The Brewer, The Baker, and Merrin Somerset Webb. This was held at Pamuir House in Edinburgh, the only surviving residence of Adam Smith. He lived there between 1778 and 1790, dying there in 1790. We taped this panel on the 26th of August as part of the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh. And by the way, just to tell you the quote that that title is based on, one of his most famous quotes, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker, that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Okay, so who has read any of Adam Smith's great books? Who's read The Wealth of Nations? Who's read Moral Sentiments? Who's read both? There are two liars in the room today. (laughs) Maybe one liar? I don't know. We'll fight about that later. I did. I did uh, once embarrass someone who said they'd they'd read both, and I believed them, and asked them some questions about it, and then I decided I'd better not do that again because it would be awkward. Um, now, so those of you who've been here before, you know a little bit about the house. You've heard a talk about it, it downstairs, and I've been doing this now for four or five years, four years. I don't know, since the beginning. Anyway, 2000 and yeah, many years. Six years. Six years. Okay. And it was an extraordinary privilege to do it the first time we did it. It was the first event that happened in this house. And it was the first time that a conversation about politics and economics had, had happened in this house since Adam Smith's death. So it was all rather wonderful. And this year, of course, it's, it's special all over again because it's the, the 300 year anniversary of Adam Smith's birth. So we have yet another opportunity to feel like we're doing something incredibly special in this room. So I will get to my guest in a minute, but before we do, I want to tell you a few of the things about Adam Smith that I've always found uh, most uh, interesting and irritating. You might look at this house and think to yourself, how did an academic get to live in one of the greatest houses in Edinburgh? How did he manage to, to get the money together to do this? And when I look at him, I always think of him first in terms of his pension. Because those of you who've read my work over the years will know that I'm absolutely obsessed with other people's pensions. (laughs) Who 
Who in this room has a defined benefit pension? And no liars, please, because I can see that you're all the right kind of age. Who's got a defined benefit pension? Isn't it absolutely marvelous? <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. Do you feel gorgeously financially secure? And when you look at the newspaper and see everyone else stressing out about inflation, you don't have to do that. You know, it's just fine. Feels great, right? Adam Smith felt like that. He felt like that and he felt like that in an extra good way because he only worked for two years as a tutor to get his defined benefit pension, which lasted his entire life and was the equivalent of 60,000 pounds a year for two years worth. And he was also, of course, a best-selling author. And those of you who have read um, any of his books will know how brilliantly easy they are to read, right? <laughs> they were absolute bestsellers at the time. Wealth of Nations, its first edition sold out in six months and was reprinted and reprinted and reprinted. People were more tolerant of long sentences and bad editing back in the day. Up and down the Royal Mile, you could buy Adam Smith souvenirs and mementos, and he was a proper celebrity in his day, and that is how he did it. He was the academic celebrity, maybe the, the Neil Ferguson of his time, perhaps. Right, on to the celebrities I have with me today. <clears throat> on my right, James Anderson, who lots of you will know, who is uh, no longer at Bailey Gifford, but well-known for being the co-manager and the driver behind the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, one of the most well-known and successful investment funds in the UK. James is now uh, claiming to be retired, but of course not remotely retired, um, back in investing and uh, uh, chair of, um, of uh, Kinovic. So uh, still very busy and very involved and has a, a quote here that he's going to use that I'm quite interested in. On my left, Russell Napier, who I think also a lot of you will know, uh, an excellent um, equity strategist, but maybe tacit, ta uh, tactical investor at the moment as well. I've been reading your work where suddenly you've gone all ta tactical. The author of a few excellent books, my favorite being Anatomy of a Bear, which is a book I think we all should be reading again at the moment and the founder of the Library of Mistakes. Who's been to the Library of Mistakes in Edinburgh? Excellent. Anyone who hasn't been, you must go immediately. Is it open today, Russell? Until five o'clock. Okay. Leave here, go there. Um, it's, it's important to see, and we will eventually learn from our mistakes in finance, won't we, Russell? We will. Excellent. Not, and, sorry, we will huh? not. We will not. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We never will. We never will. And on my far left, Anna MacDonald, who has had a long career in fund management in the UK and in particularly in, in small cap investments. So uh, we will get all our investment advice from Anna at the end. Now, the way this works, as those of you who have been here before will know, is that I ask each of my guests, it's not quite a game show, but it has that feel about it, ask each of my guests to come up with their favourite Adam Smith quote, which means that they've all reread Wealth of Nations in the last couple of weeks to find their favourite quote. And then we will talk about those quotes, uh, why they were important then, why they are important now, what, what their relevance today is. And then we will proceed to talk over each other for about 40 minutes. We are going to start, we agreed to start with you, didn't we? We did. With James's quote. Right, James. What's Good to be here. Um, well, just as a very two-sentence introduction to the quote, when I told Marin that I had read The Wealth of Nations. She immediately disqualified it on the basis I was forced to at university. And I think that was probably justified. But rather surprisingly, I still have the edition from 45 years ago. And I found when looking up my quote in it, that I hadn't at that time marked it, despite marking most <laughs> items on that page. It's so I suppose it? it proves how one tastes change over the course of time. But the quote is a short one. As capitals increase in any country, 
the profits which can be made by employing them necessarily diminish. Now, Smith at the time, in his usual manner, produced a lot of evidence for this, and he thought it was a natural outcome of the increasing competition that provision of capital would allow for. But he also pointed to specific examples of both sides of it. He thought that capital would be very highly rewarded in America because relative to the burgeoning scale of the population and the potential, there wasn't enough capital. Whereas he cited two interestingly contrasting, but still perhaps valuable examples in the cases of China and Holland as being countries which had got as far as they possibly could. Um, but why am I interested now? I'm interested now because for all Smith's absolute brilliance and insight, and I'm not in any sense at all trying to be derogatory about that. Which is lucky under the yeah. <laughs> But this is not what has happened. We are in an environment, particularly in that most capitalist or oligarchic society of America, where corporate profits are at an all-time high as a percentage of anything. And the standard figure, of course, you can quarrel with this, is that over the last 70 years, since 1950s, we're now at the level where, in and of itself, $600 billion a year has been transferred from labour to capital. But isn't, before we move on to why he's been so wrong this time, isn't it fair to say that historically he has been right in that corporate profits have always mean reverted in the past? And, uh, you know, writers like me and, uh, and you as well, Russell as well, we've been waiting, haven't we, for profits to mean revert, revert i.e. the returns to capital to fall and the returns of labour to rise yep. and things to normalise. And this is the one time we can point to where it simply hasn't happened. Corporate yes. profits have kept rising and real wages have kept falling. There are two things, Marin, that over the course of my career, uh, I've assumed would mean revert and haven't. One is what we're just talking about. The other is the feet fund managers, uh, which <laughs> we'll come back I would to that one. you on. Uh, um, but, you know, some degree, I think it is about the raw political power of those who are in industry. And plainly, that applies very heavily in America. And I think, you know, the whole current Biden phase is in many ways trying to reinforce that. Some of it is about the role of fund managers themselves, which I think the rise of professional fund managers and asset managers controlling much of what goes on. There's a guy called Brett Christophers who writes fascinating books about how the whole infrastructure, which we pay more for and get less out of, uh, has, has been structurally changed. Some of it is to my mind, a slightly less malign feature, but is part of the business models of the great platform technology companies, which are very hard to disaggregate and drive down. But I think it's a really important mystery, and you're putting it in the context of this mean reversion one. It only makes it more interesting, and I'd be very interested what all three of you has. But I think it's one of the central, least examined dilemmas of our current era. But it is, I'm actually looking for, for the quote here. I, I try and have a quote for every occasion. And there is, there is a section where Adam Smith does write about this, where he says that once a government, once business gets its hands on government, it no, things no longer work like they should. And this is, this is the, this is the road to hell, business, business having political power. Absolutely. And again, in the current context, I think a, a quote at about the same stage of, of the development of the argument is that we should criticise 
workers far less for getting the rewards that he eventually regards that as a good thing for the development of prosperity and companies far more. So there's been a lot written, as you'd well know, in the last 18 months about this as how far it's corporates jagging up their prices that has actually led inflation or exploited the conditions that you could exploit inflation rather than it being wage-led, which somebody immediately brought up in the 1970s. It's amazing how little it has translated into higher ways. Well, in, in the US, there are statistics for this, which is wonderful, because they always produce statistics. So the first intervention by the state was really the Interstate Commerce Commission to try mm. and regulate the railways, at the, partially at the push of William Jennings Bryan. So you can chart it from 1892 today. So does anybody want to guess which president had the most actions to try and break up oligopolies, effectively reduce the power of the corporation and effectively reduce, be a, a, a catalyst for mean reversion? And again, Reagan. Reagan. No. Jimmy Carter. No. No. That's basically all the presidents. Dwight Eisenhower. <laughs> which is fascinating because yeah, he's, rep he's a Republican. Yeah. But in those days, Republicans believed that to have a proper republic, the, state, the corporate couldn't be that powerful. And what was driving it was the not, it wasn't, no one ever accused the general of being anti-capitalist. It was to have competition. And I don't think we have that quote, but Smith, right at the core of Smith is competition. Mm -hmm. What is capitalism without competition? I don't have an answer to that, yeah, but, but it isn't capitalism. It's a very so Eisenhower, cute reminder, thank you. Yeah. Eisenhower was, uh, was the man who drove that and, uh, as a Republican. And he writes a lot about how um, you know the, uh, it is natural for the businessman to, to want to get rid of capitalism, mm. real capitalism. It's natural for businessmen to gather final, together and what was create it, What was his final, his final words to all of us before he left office? To beware the military-industrial complex. Oh. That's a Republican speaking. Okay, so what turns it around? I mean, I've, I've been writing for, for years that, you know, at some point Labour will get its power back and at some point we will see this pendulum swing because pendulums always do swing. And there's been hints over the last couple of years, I mean, certainly in the UK, that Labour is beginning to get its power back and wages are now rising slightly faster than inflation. So do we begin to see the return of consistently rising real wages or is that impossible in a low productivity economy? Certainly not impossible. Just the question is, what are the consequences of it? But it's not impossible. I don't think the seventies was a high productivity economy. I certainly don't remember it as such, even though I was quite a young man at the time. Okay, so this reset is impossible. I don't think quite impossible. So to to bring in a, another person who's written thought a lot about this, the the great eighty three year old Carlotta Perez, um, and the interaction between financial. Um, controls and power with technological innovation. Her hypothesis, and she's just halfway through a 600-page history of this, is that you absolutely need the state to come back in this context. And her argument is that, in fact, the state has always been critical in resetting the balance, but you need a state that is not controlled by the bourgeoisie or the oligopolists. In, oh. in, in, in that but sense. we also have a problem in that sense at the moment that that's not the direction that the state is going in. At the moment, we have a state that gets involved in more and more and more and more things. Everything is, you've written about this, haven't you? The mm. socialization of risk, that the, but, the state never stops with the intervening. We're talking about but not intervening the way you're talking. Two about. different things. Should the state yeah. do things or should the state stop oligopolies? They're two different things, actually. But we, the, it seems more interested in the former than the latter. Exactly. Cur so we have the wrong kind of state. Well, currently. Currently. That sounds optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> mean reverts. State mean reverts as well. Politics mean reverts. <laughs> <laughs>
But it's interesting, isn't it, with the CHIPS Act and and the Inflation Reduction Act in the USA, um, how the US is now so relying on its sort of might and its its dollar power and everything to feel that there's no limit to how much debt there can be in the public sector. And that in fact, I don't think we really understand what new levels of risks there are going to be around the level of debt in the US, because it's not so much privately held. This is going to be an awful lot of public debt now. Mm. Um, I think that can... brings us quite nicely into yeah. your quote, actually. Okay, let's, let's take Anna's. Mine's a bit longer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Great nations are never impoverished by private, though they are sometimes by public prodigality and misconduct. Almost the whole public revenue is in most countries employed in maintaining unproductive hands, such as the people who compose a numerous and splendid court, great fleets and armies, and are all maintained by the produce of other men's labour. All the frugality and good conduct of individuals may not be able to compensate the waste and degradation of produce occasioned by this violent and forced encroachment. Okay, that was a long one. Yes, sorry about that. Lucky I didn't ask you to memorize these quotes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is all sounds absolutely true, but what, what are you getting? Well, at I was. I, there, there's numerous examples where this is relevant. I think. I mean, we're just talking about one. Then we could. We I mentioned chips and IRA and. Um, and we, we see this all over the place. But actually, I was going to to relate it to China, which um, is um, their economy is now three quarters the size of the US's. Um, just to put into context the growth it's been through, um, it was a tenth of the size in 1980, despite having a population four times greater at that point. Um, and we've been used to seeing eight, 10% growth in GDP. Um, but I think what we are really surprised about now is that the that the that the the economic growth has not returned in the same kind of way that we would have expected after the pandemic. Um, Adam Smith talked about you know violence and forced encroachment. I mean, I think we really saw the draconian nature of what China's ever more centralized government could do um, during COVID, and I think that they're just making one poly policy mistake after another at the moment. And um, the that the more centralized power you have, the 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 more yes men that Xi has around him um, is going to just layer further problems upon the economic growth size, growth story of China. Mm. I think we all thought China was going to overtake the US at some stage, but I don't even, I can't, I can't see that happening in any, you know, in any kind of time horizon. And I just think that this, that we have now a huge, it's still a very large economy um, with uh, an increasingly, um, um, increasingly policy, um, increased policy error and we've started seeing big disruption in the property market, and we're seeing more obfuscation. When Chinese don't like data they're publishing, they stop publishing it. They oh, stop publishing Scotland. consumer <laughs> confidence data, <laughs> just like Scotland. Um, they stopped publishing consumer confidence data in April. They stopped a couple of weeks ago publishing the levels of youth unemployment that are getting pretty high. Now you have to give us your favorite quote. That's the penalty. <laughs> <laughs> So I and I think it's I think that it's 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 just I think there's some risks to it. Um, I think the risk globally we're already starting to see the effect of on more industrialized European countries in terms of their growth trajectories. Um, but also I think that Xi's the way his his the way he's building his court around him. I think if there's if there is actual economic um, discontent. Um, and a feeling, a growing feeling that your children are not going to be better off 
than than you are. Um, there could be some kind of political um, ramifications, and the most likely to me is that they would he would sort of shore up some some support by invading Taiwan. Okay, I was hoping this was going to be a more optimistic session. <laughs> Listen, let, let me let me build something optimistic out of that. What about if 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 that means that China once again starts um, exporting deflation? The well, they, they are I mean, one, one of the great drivers behind our, our previous great moderation was mm. the fact that we were getting a deflationary impulse out of China, right? Yeah. And that that allowed our central banks to think they were geniuses, which of course they still yeah. do, and that's fine. Maybe we'll get back to that uh, with a little help, yeah. external help. Um, and that could be a positive driver, bringing yeah. down uh, inflation across the West. Huh? But but yes, but also but it's driven by very low growth, and um, and we don't have and I mean I think that. Um, that um, if we didn't have, for example, if we could, if we took the U.S. out of the global equation at the moment, we'd all be in stagflation. Um, and yes, while these these uh, deflationary imp uh, impulses from China might be helpful, we're at the same time at this, you know, we're still putting quite inflationary things into the into the Western economies in particular. Russell, you're pretty depressed about China as well, aren't you? Any any posi anything positive to drag out of what's Happening with the Chinese economy? No. Thank you. <laughs> uh, look, I just mentioned debt. So, that, I mean, th sometimes things structurally change. So, we go back to 2007 as we roll into the GFC. China's debt to GDP ratio is 140%. The US at that stage is already at about 240 and I think gets peaks at 280. But we take the snapshot today and the US hasn't actually changed much. I know people will be surprised by that. But China's gone from 140 to 290. Mm. So that growth that it's manufactured over the last, uh, whatever that is, now 14 years, has been heavily driven by debt. And it's debt in that it's very hard to divide the public and private sector in China, but it genuinely seems to be in both the public and private sector. So the problem with the slowdown is it's, it's, it's what we might call a debt deflation. The risk is a debt deflation, which is something that Irving Fisher sort of talked about in 1932. So the risk is a debt deflation. Now, no politician in their right mind would force their economy through a debt deflation because it tends to create great social unrest. I'm going to stop unrest. you and ask so you to explain. On the, so on the upside... You have to stop <laughs> and explain a debt deflation. A, de a debt deflation is really when the asset prices start to fall and you're, you've borrowed over the asset price. And the uh, you then have people having to liquidate to pay back the debt. That leads to a con actually a contraction in the supply of money. Yeah. because banks actually then contract. The supply of money then leads to more deflation. And this is what happened in the United States from 29 to 33. Nobody knew how to solve it or, well, Fisher wrote something, but it came it came too late. So if he goes this route, there is the risk now is it's not a slowdown. There's so much debt in the system, it becomes something more uh, egregious than that. If you had a slow motion version, maybe it looks a little bit more like Japan has for for 20 odd years. But I was going to say something optimistic. Okay, I, don't think, on, I, don't think he, I don't think he can force his people through that. I think he's going to print a lot of money and and, and uh, inflate it all away. I mean, that's where he has to end up. I, I think it's too dangerous, even for the Chinese Communist Party under Xi, which is a very powerful organization. I think it's too dangerous a thing for him to try and pull off. So he'll try to reflate the economy. But for me, that means the currency probably has to fall. Okay. And what will that mean for the rest of us? Well, I think they'll put tariffs on China. I think that's as simple as that. That, that, that economy is too big. It's too big this time to grow via a lower exchange rate and exporting. I don't think we can cope with it. I don't think we want to cope with it from a this purely political economy. From a political economy, we can't let China grow the way it has grown. So that's not economics. I think that's politics. So I think some restrictions on its ability to export its way back to glory 
are highly likely. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Where do you stand on this, James? You've always been a, a, an investor in China, or in Chinese companies, shall we say. Yeah. Um, my level of confidence is very low in making judgments about this. We all know, and Adam Smith certainly knew, you could spend your entire career learning about China and still not have a clue. So I think that, you know, fund managers are used to dealing with uncertainties, but this is truly deeply, deeply unpredictable. And I don't know whether what you're talking about, which may well come about, leads to wholesale political revolution. You know, throw in another book because it has Adam Smith in title. There's an Italian-American scholar called Giovanni Arrighi who wrote a book called Adam Smith in Beijing, which in a sense was thinking through some of these issues. And the great question he kept coming back to was, would the Chinese bourgeoisie ever turn out to be in charge of the economic development of China. And I think that is a question we need to keep in mind. My one deep negativity about it, and I feel, you know, to be honest about this, I didn't realize the implications overall. Russell Russell used the word politics. I think I underestimated the united degree of hostility in America towards China. One thing they agree about at the the moment and the consequences of that and which, you know, ultimately back Anna to the Chips Act and the like is about China more than anything else. But beneath that, I wouldn't underestimate the human capital. And again, I think this is quite consistent with what Al Smith would have thought about it. In fact, he goes on, this was part of the very longer quote that actually that, um, that, um, the individual will work hard enough to try and sort of op- compensate for the for the the damage that the um, 
state does. Like the unknown principle of animal life, it frequently restores health and vigour to the constitution, in spite not only of the disease, but of the absurd prescriptions of the doctor. So the, the doctor being the state and the animal being our animal, mm. our individual animal spirits. Mm. And it feels like that across the West as well, yeah. right, doesn't it? That uh, you know, the industry carries on in spite of rather than because of the existence mm. yeah. of the state. Mm. And there is, by the way, on that matter, there's a podcast that we did a few a few months ago with an author called Peter Turkin about the um, oversupply of elite yes. in the West. Mm. Yep. And that, that feeds in very neatly to this quote <laughs> as well about the sort of vast number of people now working in high status but unproductive jobs across, across the West. And, and that might get far worse with AI. Absolutely. Yeah, if these people, if all these lawyers don't even have a job. But they're all going to have to go and work in the charitable or ESG sector, aren't they? Yeah, a lot of them. Um, so you know, but the, that, that podcast is very much about the, the way that as we continue quite rightly to educate and educate and educate, we end up with an awful lot of people who feel like they should have more status than, than they actually do because there aren't actually enough productive elite jobs to go around. And uh, Peter, and not everyone in this room will, will agree with his views on this, but this has led very much to the rise of um, discussions about ESG, discussions about sustainability, the rise of the third sector, the huge charitable sectors across uh, the Western countries at the moment. Huge numbers of people shuffling bits of paper around to possibly to some gain, possibly not, but not working in what we might have considered previously to be productive jobs. It's very worthwhile while, while reading. You, you're nodding away, Emma, but I can't believe you're agreeing with me on this. Uh, no, I, well, I think his diagnosis of the problem may well be pretty correct. Um, I think we probably haven't got time to examine where where I agree and where, where I differ from you on, on the ESG parts of it. The, the one thing I suppose one should show, and I don't know whether it came up in your discussion, but mm. if I read Peter Turkin's book rightly, is he thinks that this was going to peak in about like 2024, 2025. Think, yeah. Now, I'm not sure if you put AI on top of that, that he wouldn't need to push that out a bit. Mm. No, he only thinks he's going to peak with a lot of um, uh, social unpleasantness. Mm. Um, but then... Mm, mm. And he, he's very interesting as well on, on the way we have previously exported our elites when we've had too many of them. Particularly Scotland has been excellent at educating people very well and then uh, getting them to leave. Not as good as Northern Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> the question is whether we have elites any longer. <laughs> yeah. well, maybe they've all left. Um, we have a, a, a final final quote. I, I can't think of time ways. Yes, we do need to move on to your quote. Russell. Okay, I'm going to explain why I picked it first so you can have it in context. So uh, Smith is always associated with a phrase called enlightened self-interest. And then every economist in the world gets to define it and tell us what it is. So I'm going to give you what I think is Smith's definition of enlightened self-interest. And you can tell me whether you think it's the same one that is widely used by economists. And he says the, the following. In terms of this is about all of us. It's nothing to do with economics. It's to do with us. Uh, when we are always so much more deeply affected by whatever concerns ourselves than by whatever concerns other men. What is it which prompts the generous upon all occasions and the mean upon many to sacrifice their own interest to the greater interests of others? It is not the soft power of humanity. It is not that feeble spark of benevolence of which nature has lighted up in the human heart that is thus capable of counteracting the strongest impulses of self-love. It is a stronger power, a more forcible motive which exerts itself upon such occasions. It is reason, principle, conscience, the inhabitant of the breast, the man within, the greater judge and arbiter of our conduct, 
uh, not the rational economic man. I don't know what that definition is of, but it's not of a rational economic man. And, and that is his definition of enlightened self-interest. And we've replaced it with something else. And so I think there's a, you know, a problem at the core of economics. Now, I'm not... So this is not a straw man. Economists, some of them know this. Things are changing. We're making mm -hmm. we're making progress, but we can now make quite a lot of progress on this because of advances in neuroscience. He calls it the man in the breast. So the, man in the neuroscience isn't going to help you with that. But in terms of working out how we actually believe and how we're not rational, and this is not behavioral finance, is something much bigger than that. We can now make some scientific progress on this and begin to have a more nuanced uh, understanding of what we do every time we make an economic transaction. So I think it's quite exciting that we can get, I, I would guarantee you if Smith was living in this house today, he'd spend all his time with neuroscientists trying to understand this. I mean, he, he, he would know that you couldn't perfectly understand it, but he would know that we could perhaps better understand it. So that might lead us to a day when one day one economic model might actually work. <laughs> well, no, probably not. <laughs> because the reason the economic models are wrong is because they assume this kind of um, automaton, right at the core. We're all automatons. And the reason that they wouldn't want to go away from the automatons is it would make life more difficult in models. But it may take us to a world where we rely less on models. So that would be, in my opinion, a major step in the right direction. So not necessarily a model that works, but realizing that the fallacy of the model rather than betting the whole global financial system upon it, which is what we've come to do on occasion. Yeah. It's interesting. We have at the moment the Bank of England are doing a big review of their models, right? Because they've been so unbelievably useless for the last, well, for the last forever. So they're doing a big review of the whole way in which they, they model. But it's hard to see how without taking this into account, they can make a model that yeah, could be any more accurate. We're in the very early days of this. I don't yeah. think, you know, there is, there's definitely progress being made by philosophers and sociologists, neuroscientists, but it's, we're at the early stages of this. So we are trying to do something about it here in Edinburgh with a thing called the market mind hypothesis, but it's a little step in the right direction. But it's time we started asking the right questions. If you read this, you ask different questions of economics. You what don't questions, ask the same, what don't questions ask the are we going to ask that we don't ask now? So we, let's, let's say that one ran an, an economics course and one was mm -hmm. teaching it in a normal way and one looked at this quote and thought, well, we're asking the wrong questions. Which, which are the questions that you would now want to ask? We would ask the questions as to what is the man in the breast? I mean, that's the broadest definition I can give you. How does that work? Because it's not rational. He says specifically, it's not self-love. It's not rational. It's principle and conscious. So how do we better understand that? Particularly in a group setting, because we know it changes in a group setting. And we'd be asking those questions. And then the allocation of resources, which is what economics is, would be more understandable to all of us. And the models might be less relied upon. Isn't this the bit that government is supposed to do? Government is supposed to understand captured this bit by the, and government's captured it by on the top models. Over. I mean, the models and, and the economists have captured the government. We talked about how the businesses have perhaps captured policymakers thinking like an economist. You know, it's rational. What's wrong with rational? And, you know, it's not rational because it's based upon something which is a foundational error. Well, foundational error because it was plucked from one of Smith's books. And yet when he defined it in the other book, they decided to ignore it. So I think the government's also using the, the models or over-reliant upon the models. So anything they do, anything they do self-correct, potentially adds to the, uh, let's call it the disturbance in the force, shall we? Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, when, whenever you, um, 
you, people talk about Adam Smith and when in the beginning of, of all the books on him, the introduction to, to Wikipedia page, etc. They all yeah. talk about him as the father of economics, the father of capitalism, etc. So he somehow invented a theory when part of what we're talking about is the fact that he didn't invent anything. He simply attempted to describe the existing human condition. So when we have conversations as we have in the show before about you know, socialism versus capitalism, etc., it's, it's, it's a misunderstanding of the fact that there's but, no yeah, choice in this. What he's doing is describing. And he spends quite a lot of time talking about judging how, how, how a country is performing based on how it's treating its less well-off citizens and how, and, and the sign of actually uh, a great wealth and maturity of a country is if, if it will look after those who, are, who, are, who struggle to become, who, are, who can't be economically productive themselves. But I think it's fair to say that if you cut up any of his works into article size, None of them would be published by any of the economic journals <laughs> that you need to, to, today. Yeah. And you know, I, 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 Russell, I found what you said absolutely fascinating and, and trying to think it through. But doesn't it also apply to us, and as you have been for much of your career, as practitioners of finance? So we're not just as much a prison of a certain ideology. I mean, my view would be that we absolutely need to get away from this view that success as a fund manager is defined by whether you've outperformed by your peers in the last three months or even last calendar year. And that what we should be here for is trying to create great companies that move the world forward. That's what we're for. We've financialized everything. Yeah, so, I only half agree with you on that. I, mean, we've, I, I think I'm making progress. <laughs> <laughs> In that, absolutely, yes, the, the fund manager is there to make sure that capital is directed towards companies that will do great things and improve the world, etc., as you say. But they're also there to invest in such a way that the likes of us get a four or five percent every year and survive our retirements. And these are these are different different things. And you you fall very much on on one side, but most of most of my readers are not necessarily looking to invest at the beginning of great companies, they're looking to get their 5 or 6% of existing companies that are being run in a reasonably good way. Uh, I think, as ever, you put it extremely clearly, the, the differentiation. But to quote somebody else, um, a frequent visitor to Panmure House, um, John Kay, mm. who is not um, involved in much of the economic mm. sophistry that, that's come to dominate us, Aren't you better, Marin, getting to that return by having both an adequately diversified portfolio, but above all, that obliquity comes into this? If, you, if, if I try and make my company's share price go up, it doesn't happen. If you try and help build great companies, at least sometimes, it does happen. So, you know, I'm not sure, and this would take much longer than the time. Yeah, we need, we need more time than we have for this, yeah. But if we had Smith sitting here, and we, um, James and I described how capital is currently allocated by the system, and Smith mm. was there, and then we stopped, and he'd say, and what do you call this system? Because he wouldn't call it capitalism, particularly the index fund. You know, the idea that that's the efficient allocation of capital, we've got so far away from the efficient allocation of capital 
he wouldn't know what it is. I really don't think he'd know what it is. Modern aphrodite, what would you call it? I'll have to come up with a pithy name for it. You're good at, you're good at this. I'll come up with I think we can do this. Um, Anna, you invest, you've always invested in a different way. I mean, this has been your job is not to go anywhere near index funds or uh, uh, companies that are going to provide everyone with their three, four percent. But you're actually always worked at the coalface of doing exactly what James is suggesting, uh, getting into smaller companies that are doing interesting things at the beginning. That is that for you, that's real investing? It, it absolutely is. But over the last couple, two, three, four, four years in the UK, it's been unbelievably unrewarding. <laughs> and um, the UK market has gone over the last decade from about 9% of the market to about 4%. And the sector that I, the part of that, the mid and small cap sector is even smaller. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's been extremely dispiriting. And I can't actually, um, it's quite interesting if you global allocators don't seem to consider it, even though it's quite cheap, a very interesting place to be. Occasionally, a stock will get bought, but that actually just sort of de-equitizes this market even more. But they're wrong, aren't they? Because there are lots there of are really lots of great, great smaller companies. companies in the UK. Yes. Uh, there's a fantastic, innovative, creative. There is, absolutely. Um, but um, but it just doesn't, is not being recognized by, by valuation. Undervalued. And it's, and it's very, if we're talking about the listed public sector, it's very dispiriting. And it's the, I think, management teams are not, you know, they perhaps don't see their their future on the public markets because of because of the way that that there is this just it's it's some quite relentless selling pressure that's been experienced, and um, there's also not been the same kind of long term outlook given or the patience that's required by investors perhaps because they have. Um, you, know, you can see unbelievably dramatic stock price reactions to to any kind of disappointment. Which is and doesn't this and one of the things that we talk about a lot in uh, in my columns and my podcast and and with all of you is about valuations, which I need thoroughly mm. disapprove of, James, and that's fine. But if, if that what you're talking about is is a sector in the UK, uh, smaller companies, and actually the UK market as a whole, that is unpopular globally, unpopular and globally, hence cheap. And yep. as Russell always tells us, uh, in difficult times, you want to hold cheap stocks, right? For a long time. Over, over a long, a long time. time. A long time. They can get a lot cheaper. Yeah. And it's a tricky thing. If you can get 5% risk-free at the moment. Um, and a nice savings account. Nice savings account. It raises the bar on what you might expect that you need to get from something, which is smaller cap investment does tend to be riskier. Yeah. We, we're nearly done. So I was just going to finish up by asking each of our guests the question that I know you want to know the answer to, which is where, where should you put your money now? What's, what's the investment? Um, Anna, where should, well, where, where should they put their money now? <laughs> after talking about smaller companies, I feel I should give a shout out for smaller companies for the, for, um, as a long-term component of your portfolio. But I do also think there's absolutely no real excuse to be sitting with too much cash at the moment um, and that you could buy a... Uh, a, a zero coupon, so it's not paying you any interest. Ten-year bond in the UK um, at the moment, which will give you a yield of about four percent a year, and you will not pay any capital gains tax on. So worth that, it, depending on where inflation goes. But yeah, yeah. But yeah. It, but you know, I think it would be better than holding cash. And probably almost anything, Russell. Yeah. So I, I think we're trying to work out what the, one of the most predictable things is. So this will be the one I get most wrong. 
So we are going to a fully blown Cold War with China. So as long as Xi Jinping is president of China. So if that is true, you'd buy old economy stocks in the developed world because for a prolonged period of time, they will be very profitable. Uh, that will lead to massive investment that hopefully James's companies can, the three companies he's mentioned can do this in a low carbon way. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of stuff we're not going to be buying from China now for a very prolonged period of time. And uh, China has destroyed returns for lots of companies. I say old economy, it can be anything. So I should just rephrase it. People who've competed with China and seen their returns destroyed by China, we should be looking to invest in, in those companies. Okay, so buy UK manufacturing. Yeah. Well, I said that for a while. Yeah, or maybe even steel. Steel. Decarbonized steel. James, what should we buy now? What's going to make us rich? Well, you know, I absolutely accept your critique of my position and you know it, it, it's really important that you ha have what suits your own circumstances and you have an adequate mixture in these things but I, I just mentioned two areas that I think are incredibly interesting and in some cases they do combine in the two the first one and you've written about this at various points um, I think this wholesale reversion from buying unquoted and young companies mm -hmm. is just leading to some extraordinary bargains in what's going on. And for any company now doing worthwhile tasks trying to refinance itself, there is so much power on the part of the owners of capital that the valuations are frivolously low. So I think there's that. The second one, which actually I, I, I promise you, I, I genuinely do think this. It's not just to try and cheer people up. I, I think one of the least noticed features of the last five years has been that actually companies involved in renewable energy technologies and those revolutionizing industries like the ones I was talking about have got in a position where their profitability and their advantages from first being first movers are genuinely very striking. Um, Tesla is the most obvious example, but it's not just that. And I think this is partly, and it may even come back to my quote, mm. because there are so many traditional investors who won't put capital into this. You know, the whole venture capital industry in Silicon Valley hates the fact that you have to build physical assets rather than just having a piece of software. Uh, and so I think that actually these technologies are both working in driving down the costs of decarbonizing technologies well below traditional fossil levels, but also the companies who are actually being brave enough in inventing the future are becoming sustainably, in every sense, very profitable for the long run. And I think there is a huge amount to be done in that, which is partly why I'm investigating it. Okay, optimistic note to end on. Um, I'm afraid we do have to end. I've already run over by a couple of a couple of minutes and I can see Caroline looking at me. So we have to stop there. Um, any other urgent questions do pop up and ask us at the end, but all that remains is to say thank you so much to my guests who I think Adam Smith would thoroughly have approved of. Thank you, Anna, Russell and James. Thanks for listening to this week's Marion Talks Money. We'll be back next week. Catch our debrief on this week's conversation on the Merrin Talks Money after show under the Apple subscription feed. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Summer Sadi, additional editing by Blake Maples. And many thanks, of course, to Anna McDonald, to Russell Napier, to James Anderson, and to John Stepek for their participation. And finally, do be sure to sign up for John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. The link is in the show notes. Success. It's discipline. It's teamwork. It's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing global wealth management and investment banking firms in the industry. Stiefel. It's where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.